Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. What a good day it is. This Sunday, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, amen. All right, you guys better be seated. Why don't you tell somebody next to you, I'm going to be seated. You're going to have a seat right where you are online. Tell them to say, I'm going to be seated just for participation sake today. It's a good day to be in the house. There's something that happens when you say something and do something. When you say a thing and you do a thing at the same time, there's just kind of the right feeling about it, isn't it? If you're online and you actually said, I'm gonna have a seat, but you didn't have a seat because you're already seated, there's just something in you that just didn't quite, ah, it felt weird. Why did I say it when I didn't do it? There's just something about when our words and our actions line up together. There's something about the congruency that happens in our life. It's what great character is built off of when we do something and we say something. At the same time, the leaders that we admire, that we love to follow, they do something and they say it. They say it and they do it all at the same time. There's a connection, there's a congruency in who they are and who they say they're gonna be. But there's even a next level after that. There's this space of being able, thank you, David, you guys have been so awesome. How about this team just leading us in the celebration of a victorious God? It's been so good. There's a level even after just saying what I'll do and doing what I'll say, and there's this level of predictability, the ability to predict the outcome that I'm gonna have. It looks down the line and says, this is the thing that I'm going to do, and then follows through on that thing. It comes from knowing who I am. It comes from an understanding of my ability. It comes from a, a knowledge of what I have done and what I will do and who I can be. I've been driving for a long time, so sometimes um, someone who's in the car with me might say, hey, th that light looks like it turned yellow, but I'm pretty familiar with my car and with my ability, and so I might say to them, I can make it. And I make it through that yellow light every time. Because I have done this enough times and I understand my skills well enough that I have a predictable outcome about where I'm going. Maybe you have built business after business in your life and so what seems like an impossible task to someone else, you say, I can build that business. You have the ability to predict where you're going and truly great people have the ability not just to have congruency in their words and in their actions but in the predictability of where they're going. It's what separates the good from the great. The year is 1932. It's where Jason got his suit from. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't miss it. It's so fresh. Do you guys see that three-piece suit? It just set itself up for me. The year is 1932. And the Cubs and the Yankees are in the World Series. The Cubs are up, but the Yankees have the bat. The bases are loaded. And a guy by the name of Babe 
Ruth steps up to the bat. Before he starts to swing, he famously points all the way past the outfield, past the gate, and predicts a home run that would win the World Series for the Yankees. He had confidence in who he was. He knew, and he was predicting an outcome. But as he steps up to that plate, the batter throws the ball. He swings, he strikes. He swings again, he strikes. Two strikes, he's standing there. He has made a prediction about what he is about to accomplish, but it looks unlikely that he's going to pull this off at this moment. So Babe Ruth squares his shoulders one more time looks down that line, the batter throws the ball, it comes straight down for that home plate. Babe Ruth swings, come on, you know this story. He cracks the ball all the way out of the park and the Yankees win the World Series and he solidifies his place as king of baseball. Not because he hit a home run, There are other people who had hit home runs. There were other times he had hit home runs, not because he won a World Series. Others had won the World Series. Others would win the World Series again because of the audacity that he had to before he hit his home run, point to where that ball was going and follow through. It's the combination of his prediction and his action that locked him in with that title. If you'll roll back a little bit farther with me, the year is 33, and there's this man who's been walking around claiming to be the son of God in flesh. And he does miracles, but it's not his miracles because there are others who have done miracles as well. And he teaches about the text, but it's not just that he teaches the scriptures because there are others who teach about the scriptures as well. It's not even the fact that he's going to rise again because if you remember Lazarus or the little girl, there are others who have risen from the dead and there will be others, while it's rare, who are risen from the dead. It's this combination that he has of predicting, I will rise. I know who I am. I know who I came to be. I know that I am God in flesh, and I am looking down this line, and I am predicting for you. I am making a proclamation that I will rise again on the third day. but the blood has dried in the place where they beat him. And the cross is empty that they hung him on. His disciples, many of them have scattered. They have started denying him. They are in hiding. Two days have now passed and it seems unlikely that he is going to rise again. It seems unlikely that he is gonna be able to do the thing that he told them that he was gonna do. It seems unlikely that his physical body is going to rise again. Hmm. But on the third day, there were some women, some followers of Jesus, who found themselves making their way to the tomb, who found themselves coming to see place where he laid. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 28, I want to look at it together. 
Matthew 28, starting right there in verse one, it says, now after the Sabbath toward the dawn, now, now after the Sabbath, now after the Sabbath, I can't help but move on from that point without noting that they waited until after the Sabbath because if you're, if you're visiting today or if you haven't been here in a while, you might not know that we're, we just are taking a little pause from this series that we're in the middle of called Healed People. And one of the things that we know is habits of healed people is that healed people know how to pause for holy rest. And even though these women found themselves in the worst crisis of their life, even though they found themselves in utter devastation, somehow they had built a rhythm and a habit in their life of pausing for holy rest. And so before they came, they paused for the Sabbath. And and not only did they pause for the holy rest, I want you to note that it's the fact that they paused for their rest that put them right in the timing that God needed them to be in. The fact that they took a day to rest, the fact that they took a day to commune with God, even though they had no idea what God was doing, positioned them exactly where he needed them to be. And so now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here For he has risen as he said, come and see the place where he used to lay. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to celebrate, to remember Jesus, to remember your sacrifice, to remember your resurrection, to come before you with great celebration, with great gladness, with great gratitude. God, we thank you. And so today I just say, let your name be lifted up. Let your name be glorified. Let your people be celebrated and let those who don't know you see you for the first time, Jesus. In your mighty name, amen. Now there are these women who have found themselves right here at the tomb. They have found themselves the very first people to find out that Jesus has done exactly what he said he was gonna do, that he in fact has risen and he in fact is no longer in the grave. There are these women, these followers of Jesus who have come all the way back returning to the tomb and they are the first, they were the last to see him take his breath but they are the first to come back to the tomb, and here they find themselves. Who are these women who the angel extended an invitation to and said, come and see the place where he used to lay. You've come this far, so you might as well come all the way in and see the tomb is empty and see that the grave is empty and see that he no longer lays here anymore because his body, in fact, has risen while these disciples came to find out about their Jesus. While they came together, they came to see a very different 
Jesus. They came from very different backgrounds. They came for very different purposes. They understood him to be a different person because of each of their stories. They came to see someone different, each of them. Now, we know there were a group of women who came, but there are four of them who are named throughout the Gospels. If you read the Gospel stories, they take the time to specifically name four of the women who came. And these four women, they know something different about Jesus, and they tell us something about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. These four women who showed up, these four disciples of Jesus, coming back and waiting at the tomb. Mark tells us about a woman named Salome. Salome came to see her teacher. Salome is the kind of woman you would expect to see following Jesus. She's a good Jewish woman. She and her husband Zebedee have been faithful Jewish people. They are followers of God. They have raised their children in the way and in the path of God. They are good, righteous people who follow the laws who have been laid out before them. They go to temple regularly. They give of their alms and of their tithes regularly. They show up. They work hard. They are diligent, consistent people. And two of their sons not only are disciples of Jesus, but are in Jesus' inner circle. There's Peter, James, and John, the three that Jesus often calls out, and James and John are brothers, and they are the sons of Zebedee and, and Salome. They are good, godly people, and she came to see her teacher who she thought might be the Messiah, but now it seems like he's dead, so she came to find out about him. But there's something about people who are used to being right, who are used to being in good position that I've observed over the years, which is that people who are used to being right are often good at being told that they're wrong and what I like about Salome is though she was used to being right she knew how to be told that she was wrong by Jesus she knew how to be corrected by him and not be offended by him she knew how to be corrected by him and not allow it to push her away from him but rather it drew her closer to him Salome if you remember is the mother who when Jesus was explaining where he was going requested a special seat for her boys like any mom, she said, I want my two boys to be seated up next to you, but because she didn't really understand the path and the place and the journey that Jesus was have to, having to go on, she thought she was requesting two extra special chairs for him, for her boys at the table. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. I am going to hang on a cross and die. I am going to wrestle with hell and have to come back. Your boys cannot come on the path that I am about to walk on. And so he corrected her. And he said, don't you ask for that thing again. But though Salome was corrected by Jesus, she didn't run from him. She ran to him. When I think about Salome and what it means to come and see the teacher, I have to think about the fact that if we really want Jesus to be our teacher, we can't just hear him say the things that we want him to say. We have to be willing for him to correct in us the things that don't line up with his picture of who we are because we don't see the fullness of what he sees. So Salome came to see her teacher who had corrected her, but she still drew all the more closer to him. Luke tells us about Joanna. Joanna is very different than Salome. She's not Jewish. She's not a Jewish woman at all. Jo Joanna came to see her healer because she is part of the Roman aristocracy. But she had this issue, though she was part of the wealthy class, though she was part of the ruling class, though she lived in one of the finest houses and time in this town, she had this issue that was going on in her life, which is that her husband was sick. 
and they couldn't get him healed. They couldn't get him well, though they had all the money they needed, though they had all the power that they needed, though they were in the class that it seemed like they needed to be in. They had this thing that they couldn't do out of their own hands, that their money couldn't buy for them, that their decisions couldn't buy for them, that their influence couldn't get them in the right room for. But when they encountered Jesus, Joanna discovered that this man who was walking around in flesh was a healer, so she came that day to see her healer. Her healer, who was willing to cross over the cultural bounds, though he was a Jewish man, and though she was part of the party of people that were oppressing his people, though there was no reason, it was entirely taboo for them to even speak to each other, much less to help one another. Jesus stepped right over that boundary and healed her husband, and when he healed her husband, she said, this is my healer. I have come to see the place where they laid my healer. The thing about an encounter with Jesus is that it changes you. When he reached out to her and he healed her husband, it changed her entire life. I would like to submit to you that if you have had an encounter with Jesus that has not changed your entire life, you might not have fully had an encounter with Jesus because what she started doing after Jesus healed her husband is that after Jesus healed her husband, she started coming out of this Roman aristocracy bubble that she was living her life in, and all of a sudden she found herself hanging out with poor Jewish women. She found herself following around this Jewish rabbi teacher. It was a place that seemed utterly beneath her. It was a place that seemed entirely outside of her. It was a place that cultural lines and boundaries said that she should not have ever crossed into. But there Joanna was, crossing into it just like Jesus had crossed into hers. And it reminds me that as our healer, he came not just to heal our physical bodies, but to heal our communities and to heal our cultures and to break down every false barrier that we have created, every myth that we have created about class and about culture and about race that keep us separated. Jesus came specifically so that he could say, these are lines that you have made, not lines that I have made. Let me show you how I step right over them and when we encounter him just like joanna we have to crash through those same barriers joanna came to see her healer and then there's mary mary came to see the one who gave her significance he's one of the ones that matthew mentioned that we read at the beginning mary came to see about jesus no not mary the mother of jesus and no not mary magdalene that you've heard of the, the other mary that's what he calls her. He calls her the other Mary, that, that other woman. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing to be labeled, to be identified by what you are not. Not just to be labeled by the place you came from, not just to be labeled by your past, not just to be labeled by the people you're connected to or the person that you married, not just to be labeled by any of the external things. Mary wasn't even labeled by the sin that she had come out of or the issue that she was redeemed from. She was simply labeled by the person that she was not. She didn't have a seat at the table like Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she didn't have an exciting story like Mary Magdalene. She was just the other Mary. Where in your life have you ever just been the other one? 
looked over because you're not quite as great as someone else on your job, looked over because your sibling was always better at a sport than you were, and so you're just the other sibling in the line. You're just the one who came next. You're just the one after. And the thing about Mary, who was the other, is that there's something going on here in their family about being the other because Mary also had a son. She also had a son named James. No, not that James. Not James that was Peter, James, and John. He's the other James. There's another James who's part of the followers of Jesus, but he belongs to the other Mary, not Mary who's Mary the mother of Jesus and not Mary who's Mary of Magdalene. And he's not James who's part of Peter, James, and John who gets called out to be in the special three. He's the other James, the son of the other Mary. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're the the other people. There's just nothing that distinct about them. We don't know how to describe them. We don't know how to tell you who they are. We don't know how to define them or how to articulate them. Have you ever felt like you were the other person but Mary learned how to be content in the place that she was she learned how to instead of running after striving how to instead of fighting for a seat for herself at the table she was content to be in the place she was in she was content with whatever they called her because she said you might call me other you might not know my story you might not really know my name you might think my son is James the lesser but I have found someone who knows my name I have found someone that when he looks at me he sees me I have found someone that calls my name and called me unto his own so you can call me other if you want you can call me insignificant if you want you can call me whatever you need to don't save a seat for me up front don't save a spot for me in the parking lot don't remember my number don't remember my name don't remember what I did as long as I can find myself back in Jesus because she learned how to not be pushed aside but to be content Mary the other Mary found herself among the first people when she came to see the man who gave her significance and she got to be significant because her name is written in the scripture among the first people who ever found out that he was the risen Lord so I have good news for you if somebody thinks you're other if somebody thinks you're not that special if somebody thinks you're not that great if you feel looked over at your work if you feel like you're sliding by with C's on your degree and you're not quite at the top and you're not quite bad enough that they want to give you any attention it doesn't matter what other people are labeling you Come and see someone who knows exactly who he designed you to be, who knows exactly who you were created to be, who knows exactly who he intended you to be from before creation. He sees you and he knows you and he came for you. So come and see him. The other Mary came to see about the man who gave her significance and she came with Mary Magdalene, the fourth of the four that we'll talk about, although really she's the first. She's the only one who is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. The only one who all four writers thought it was relevant that they wanted you to know that Mary Magdalene was the first at the tomb, the first to see the empty grave the first to hear his voice, the first to see him living in flesh again in his resurrected body, the first preacher to ever run in the New Testament was this Mary Magdalene who declared Jesus is risen. All four of the writers wanted you to know that that woman who was afflicted with seven demons and has now been free, she came to see her liberator. She came to see the one who set her 
free, and they all wanted you to know about it because Mary's story is not like the other women. Jesus found Mary, and when Jesus found Mary, she was afflicted with seven demons. Seven different demons had been tormenting her totally and completely. She was under the torment of these demons, and they were overcoming her, and there was nothing she could do about it except for the fact that she found herself next to Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is it actually doesn't tell us how she got these seven demons. There are lots of theories and there are lots of stories. The most common one that if you've been in church for a while, you may have heard is that Mary was a prostitute and that's what opened her life up to getting these four, these seven demons into her life. Perhaps she was Magdala, the town that she came from was known for that kind of industry. But there's nothing in the scripture, there's nothing in the text that actually tells us that that is what opened Mary up to that in her life. And what I've learned about the scripture is that scripture tells us what it thinks is relevant for us to know. So I gather from Mary's life that though she was afflicted with seven demons, what scripture wants us to take away is not how she got the seven demons. That it doesn't matter if it's some surly business that she got herself into or if it's abuse that suffered at someone else's hand. It doesn't matter if she's the one who walked herself into a situation that caused these demons to attach to her or if someone else abused her in such a way that it caused these demons to attach to her. The scripture doesn't seem to mind whether it was her own fault or someone else's fault. The scripture doesn't seem to care whether or not it was the fact that it was the system that she was brought up in or a place that she brought herself into. The scripture doesn't seem to care if it had to do with her family lineage or if it had to do with a mess that she got herself into. The scripture doesn't seem to care what it is that brought Mary to the place that opened so many doors in her life that seven different demons had attached themselves to her which leads me to believe that God does not care what it is that got you in the mess that got you here that God is not concerned about what you have gotten yourself into or the decisions that you have made that have brought you up short that he is not so concerned about what it is that has caused the broken pieces of your life but like Mary as long as you can find yourself in a path that will cross you with Jesus just one word from his mouth can bring freedom into your life just one word from his mouth brings liberation to the captive that he is the healer that encountering Jesus will cause him to do what he always does and that's to free every captive to liberate all who are bound to speak into your life and release the thing that is holding you in bondage just one encounter with Jesus and Mary's life changed forever this woman who was bound, this woman who was crazy became sane in her right mind and she couldn't help but start following Jesus. And she followed him closely and the stories in the gospels tell us that she started funding his ministry because Mary had this incredible response that when she found freedom, she wanted to make sure that others encountered what she had encountered in Jesus. There's something about freedom that makes you generous. Mary said, I don't just want to hold on to my freedom. I want to make sure that others encounter the same freedom that I have. And because Mary had such freedom, she found herself unable to look away from Jesus. She stayed with him to the very last. She lingered at the tomb until 
it was too late for her to leave and she went to Sabbath and then as soon as she could get back, she ran back to the tomb to find out, just to be at the place. She came to see her liberator. And we see this unlikely group of followers moving together. They're as different as, as each of us is with different stories as each of us have in this room. But they came back to the tomb because they had a love for Jesus. They had a love for who he was. They loved him deeply. They cared for him deeply. He was their friend. He was their teacher. He is the one who spoke to them like no one else spoke to them in their culture. He gave them significance. He gave them prominence. They loved him, and they were faithful to him. When many of the well, much more well-known disciples had scattered, were denying him, were in hiding, these disciples came to his tomb. They were faithful, even unto death. They were faithful to who Jesus was. They, they loved him, and they were faithful to him. But they also doubted him. They doubted that he was who he said he was. They doubted that he could do what he said he could do. They doubted that his body really was going to rise again. And the whole thing is hanging on the resurrection. How do I know that they doubted? How do I know what was going on in their hearts and their minds in this terrible, critical, difficult time with these women who loved Jesus so dearly and were so faithful to him? How do I know what was happening? Luke tells me. And it makes sense to me that Luke would include this detail because Luke was a physician. If you want to look at Luke 23, we're going to start at the end of Luke 23 and read right into Luke 24. Luke 23 and 55 says, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned. So this is before, right? We've just come from the cross and come from the tomb. It says, then they returned and they prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, we just met the verse that we read in Matthew. On the first day of the week, at an early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away. Now, what are they doing? What are they doing with these spices? What are they doing coming? You have to understand a little bit about the history. You have to understand a little bit about the culture, about the context that they are living in. These women have spent their final moments before their Sabbath preparing these spices. What are these spices that they are bringing to the tomb? It's important that you understand that Jews did not practice embalming in the way that some other cultures of their time did. And so what they would do is they would bring spices and they would cover the body with spices to help it in its decomposition and to prevent it from causing an, a, a terrible stench as the body decomposed. These women doubted Jesus was who he said he was. They were bringing with them something to the tomb, not because they thought that he was going to be risen, but because they wanted to make sure, because they were so faithful to him, they wanted to make sure that his body decomposed properly. 
that he had dignity in his death, but they didn't understand. And so they came to this place. They walked with their spices to the borrowed tomb that Jesus laid in because though he predicted his death, he made no plans for his death because he thought, I'm only gonna need this for a little while, so why go through all the effort of preparing something that I'm not going to need? But these women, they spent the final moments before their Sabbath preparing spices, grinding out spices that they would never need. What are you preparing in your life with your own hands, with your own grinding that you have no need of if you would just trust him? The fact that you're preparing it, the fact that you're trying to build it, the fact that you are trying to grind it out because you have doubted him, because you have doubted that he is going to do what he said he would do and there these women find themselves with these spices that they prepared coming to see the Jesus that they love so dearly the Jesus that they are so faithful to and the Jesus that they doubt what are they doing in this space of doubt doubt is the space we exist in mentally when we are somewhere between belief and unbelief it is not totally unbelief and it's not totally belief it's I believe some of what's happening here and I want to believe what's going on but there's so much evidence happening that causes me to not believe that I find myself somewhere in the in-between, somewhere hanging just in the space of doubt. And these women find themselves having seen so much of what Jesus did, having known so much of what he meant to them and how he spoke to them. But at the same time, having seen his dead body laid in a tomb, they find themselves in the place of doubt. And it's good news for anyone who has ever felt doubt about what Jesus said to you, that these women also found themselves in doubt because when you find yourself in doubt I can't help but think about a father in Mark 9 who had need of his son to be healed when Jesus asked him do you believe he said I doubt he said I believe but help me with my unbelief I believe, but I have this space where I'm not quite sure that I believe. Sometimes I find myself in doubt because I want my boy to be healed, but I've seen how bad that it gets, and I've heard what the doctors have said over his life, and I understand just how critical this situation is. So I want to believe, but I find myself doubting. I want to believe that this relationship is really going to make it, God. I want to lean on your belief, but sometimes I look at how difficult it's gotten. I look at all of the mess that has been made of it, and I find myself a little bit in a place of doubting that you really can do the thing that you said that you could do and just like these women we find ourselves existing in that space in between that we call doubt somewhere between belief and unbelief the good news is if you like these women stay close enough to Jesus to just come and see him the same invitation exists to you that the angel extended to them that day Come and see the place that he laid. Come and see how he did exactly what he said he was going to do. If you will come and see him, you will come and see. Come and see how he rose again. Come and see how he hung on that tree. Come and see how when he hung on the tree, he hung there and when heaven looked on him, it didn't see Jesus hanging on a tree. It saw all of your sin. It saw all of your shame. It saw all of your punishment. It saw all of my mistakes hanging on top of Jesus. 
Jesus and then he went into the grave and when he rose again now those who believe him when heaven looks at me it doesn't see me it sees the everlasting blood of Jesus covering all of my sin covering all of my shame covering every iniquity that has ever been due to me every consequence that has ever been due to me come and see this Jesus and all that he has done because if you will come and see him Jesus will do what he always does he will open blind eyes he will set free the captives he will heal the sick body he will restore that relationship he will bring home the sinner who has been lost come and see him come and see him with all of your doubt he's not afraid of it he's not intimidated by it he's not nervous of it on this Easter Sunday on this resurrection Sunday I want to give you the same invitation that the angel gave them that day to come and see him come and see him come and bring him all of your troubles and all of your worries come and see what he will do for you.